Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. It's episode 64. And this is part two of our series on conspiracies, on aiding, abetting, principle in the first degree, principle in the second degree, all that kind of stuff. So the fundamentals of how do you charge people who are involved in a crime? Maybe they didn't pull the trigger, but they were there for it. They helped plan it. They helped execute it. They were the getaway driver. They got rid of evidence afterwards. They planned the offense ahead of time and so on. In the last episode, we talked a lot about uh, aiders and abettors and how do we hold people responsible when they're an accomplice, uh, accessory before the fact, or principle in the first degree versus principle in the second degree. We talked about the idea of concert of action, and uh, we covered all that stuff. I'm not really going to review all that stuff again. Um, this is stuff that comes from the English common law that we brought into Virginia. We updated it. We got rid of the idea of accessory at the fact and called it principle in the second degree. Um, but all that law we covered, we did not cover conspiracy. And that's sort of what drove me to do this series, this two-part series, was we don't really teach a lot about conspiracy or how to charge conspiracy or what the rule is about conspiracy in Virginia. And yet so much of what we do when we build a case is we try to build that there was a conspiracy. We try to build that these people involved, the perpetrators involved in a crime, did plan the offense uh, well in advance. And there were people who were guilty who may not even have been at the scene. Right. Uh, and that, you know, we think about the classic example is uh, Charles Manson and the Manson murders. Right. He wasn't there at the scene of the murder of Sharon Tate and the family that was there uh, that was killed. And yet he was the person who was responsible for uh, that taking place. So what's the rule about conspiracy in Virginia? What is the law? That's what I want to focus on today. And that's what those two cases that happened at the end of December from the Virginia Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals uh, were about and uh, what generated my thought to, to do this series. So in Virginia, conspiracy is a separate and distinct offense. It, it's actually contained in 18.2-22, which is a separate code section. And before I even talk about what the crime is, I think it's important that we pause for a second and Note the fact that conspiracy is a separate offense. In other words, there is a crime. Let's say my crime is robbery or burglary or murder, right? That would be the completed crime. Also, if I attempt to commit a crime, I attempt to murder somebody or I attempt to rob someone, I attempt to burglarize a home. Um, that's also a separate crime, right? So if I try to kill someone, I shoot at someone, but I miss them. That's an attempted murder. That would be a separate crime. Uh, from conspiracy. So conspiracy must be something different than simply trying to commit a crime. And it's more than just uh, helping somebody prepare for a crime, because of course, that's what accessory before the fact is. We covered that last time too. So it can't just be that. And it's more than just participating in a crime, uh, because that's what principle in a second degree is. We covered that as well. So conspiracy has to be something different, something separate from all of these offenses that we've talked about already. So what is it? Well, 18.2-22 tells us that conspiracy is defined as follows. If any person shall conspire, confederate, or combine with another, uh, either within or without the Commonwealth, to commit a felony within the Commonwealth, uh, or 
conspire, confederate, or combine with another person to commit a felony outside the Commonwealth, then they're guilty of a felony. That's pretty simple, right? It's a felony to conspire with somebody else to commit a felony. And it's punished uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're planning to commit a, uh, a capital or aggravated offense, uh, like let's say capital murder of a police officer, aggravated murder of a police officer. We say aggravated now, we used to say capital. Uh, then conspiracy is punished as a class three felony. But all your other felonies basically are going to be punished as if I'm conspiring to commit a, uh, a, a burglary or a grand larceny or a robbery or whatever, that's going to be a class five felony. My conspiracy is going to be punishable by up to 10 years in the penitentiary and up to $2,500 fine. And every member of the conspiracy is responsible for the acts of the others in furtherance of the conspiracy, even if one of those members has no knowledge of the specific act of another member. And right there, we've captured, I think, what's one of the most powerful parts about charging a conspiracy, right? Because here, if you have people who are engaged in a conspiracy, for example, to uh, murder someone, and in the course of that conspiracy, lots of other crimes are going to be committed, right? There's going to be uh, unlawfully purchasing a firearm or possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, or they're going to break into a house, so there's going to be a burglary, and there's going to be maybe a robbery and disposing of a body, and all kinds of other horrible things are going to be done. I may not be part of, I may not even know about all of the different things that are done to prepare for this murder that we're planning, but I'm responsible for all of the acts of all of my co-conspirators uh, even if I don't know about them, because I've made this agreement, this conspiracy, to commit this crime. So what is it that makes conspiracy a different crime, right? Because remember, aiding and abetting is different. You can charge aiding and abetting, and you can also charge conspiracy. They're different charges, right? Well, conspiracy is the charge where you are pre-planning, you're conniving, you're, uh, we say, pre-concert, you've concert of action ahead of time. And you're planning, you're doing some planning that's more than just the aiding and abetting. It's more than just the driving somebody to the scene of the crime or giving somebody a gun or giving someone the key to the back door to the bank to getting in. It's something more than that. It's the planning itself that is the separate and distinct crime, right? So notice again, it's not conspiracy is not attempting to commit a crime. It's not uh, taking an act towards committing a crime. In fact, in Virginia, uh, Virginia is different than some other states. Some states require to prove a conspiracy that you show that somebody actually took a substantial act towards committing the crime. Not in Virginia. Because again, if I'm taking a substantial act towards the committing of the crime, well, at that point, aren't I sort of walking into the realm of attempt, right? In other words, uh, I, I, I'm going to burglarize this house, so my substantial, attempt, my substantial step is I come up to the house with a, a crowbar, and I shove the crowbar into the window, and I'm about to pop it open, uh, but I, you know, my crowbar breaks, or the alarm goes off, or something like that. Well, isn't that just an attempt, right? That would just be an attempted burglary. It's not a conspiracy. The conspiracy is the agreement to commit the crime. We sit down and we say, hey, let's make a plan. We're going to go burglarize the Joneses' house. Okay, great. What do we need? Well, we need a crowbar. We need, uh, you know, ski masks. We need uh, to know that they're gone. So we need to study their movements or find out when they're traveling, that kind of thing. That's the conspiracy. 
And so conspiracy also is different than another, we call them inchoate crimes, right? It's different than another inchoate crime, which is the crime of solicitation. Solicitation is when I try to get somebody else to commit a crime with me. So solicitation would be commanding or entreating or trying to persuade somebody else to commit a crime. That's actually 18.229. That's a separate crime, right? So if I say, hey, we could use somebody else involved in this burglary. Let's get uh, the next door neighbor involved because he watches their movements and he would be able to help us break into the house. So let's go to him and try to see if we can convince him to join us in, right? Well, if we go to try to convince him to join us, well, that's us soliciting him. That's solicitation to commit a felony. That's 18.2-29. As soon as we go try to get him to join us, we are guilty of solicitation. But notice, if he says, you know what, guys, I think that's a great idea. I would love to. So tell me a little bit more. Let's talk about what this crime is going to look like. Now what's he guilty of too? He's also now guilty of conspiracy, just like we are. So we're guilty of solicitation and conspiracy, and he's joining in us, and he's joining in this planning, so he's also guilty of conspiracy, right? We are all guilty of this crime as soon as we make the agreement to commit the offense. And that's very important, right? It's very different uh, than some states because, again, some states require a substantial act in furtherance. Here, we don't require that. At the moment that we go to our neighbor's house and say, hey, will you join us in that burglary? We're guilty of solicitation. The moment that he agrees, yeah, I'm going to do this, he's guilty of conspiracy. And so we haven't done anything. We haven't gone to anyone's house. We haven't, you know, taken a crowbar and gone to break into this house or anything like that. All that stuff might be attempt. All that stuff might be, uh, you know, uh, the actual crime itself. But we're guilty of conspiracy at the moment that the planning takes place. So I want to pause for a second here and and sort of say, hey, you know, some people out there might already be thinking to themselves, wait a minute. So does that mean that any group of people who decide, hey, let's go commit this crime. Let's go go into the Walmart and steal a, a TV from the um, store. You distract the clerk. I'll grab the TV. We'll run outside. And then Dave will be waiting outside. We'll jump into Dave's car and Dave will drive away. Right. That's a conspiracy. Right. Uh, and yeah, it is a conspiracy. Right. How would you prove, so there's two things that I want to want you to pause for, sort of pump the brakes on that for a second though. Number one is, I want to ask you, how would you prove that, right? Because the simple act, simple fact that these three people commit this crime, in other words, you have them on video, Dave sitting outside in the getaway car, the two other people get out of the car, they walk inside the store, uh, one person distracts the clerk, the other person grabs the TV, they run outside, they jump in the car, and they drive away. That act alone isn't going to be enough for you to prove the conspiracy. The mere fact that somebody commits a crime in connection with somebody else isn't enough to prove conspiracy. That's just a, a very old legal rule. Instead, you're going to have to show that there's some kind of agreement. And you to show that agreement, you're going to have to show some kind of knowledge and voluntary participation, not just in the crime itself, but in the agreement to carry out the crime. Because again, the crime itself is the agreement, right? That's what makes somebody guilty of 
conspiracy is that agreement itself, not the um, not the um, uh, not the completed offense, right? That has nothing to do with the completed offense. Now, of course, conspiracies are clandestine in nature, and we're going to get into that in a second. I want to talk about that sort of the, issue, the issues with proof, but just that alone, I think, is something to keep in mind. But the other thing to keep in mind, and this is where one of these cases comes in uh, from the from the um, Virginia Supreme Court here from December of last year, is what's called Wharton's rule. And Wharton's rule in general tells us that conspiracy and the substantive offense itself merge when you've proved the substantive offense. In other words, if you have a situation where you've got three people who pull up to the Walmart and one guy jumps out of the car, I mean, two of the people jump outside of the car, one person stays behind to be the getaway driver, they go inside, one person distracts the clerk while the other person grabs the TV, they run outside, they jump in the car, and they drive away. I mean, the crime itself doesn't prove a conspiracy, but I don't think it would be that hard to prove the conspiracy, right? I mean, the reality is we could probably sit these people down and at least one of them would crack and tell us uh, that, yeah, we had this plan and we hatched it at Dave's house and we decided we were going to do this. And so we picked Dave's car because whatever, you know, Dave has a license or something. Who knows? Anyway, and it wouldn't be that hard to prove that there was a conspiracy. Um, somebody will tell you that somebody will admit to this conspiracy. And maybe you'll have text messages or something like that to back it up. But Wharton's rule is an old common law rule that says, look, if we allowed people to prosecute conspiracy every single time two or more people committed a crime together, then we'd be constantly prosecuting conspiracy cases. And that doesn't really make a sense because obviously if more than one person is committing a crime, there's probably some kind of agreement. And that's not the intent of the conspiracy law is just to sort of pile on and be a, a way to punish any single case where you had people committing a crime together. Conspiracy is supposed to focus on uh, prosecuting cases where you have something more than just a completed offense, right? And in December, in the Commonwealth versus Richard case, which is a case from the Virginia Supreme Court, this is a case out of Floyd where you had a number of different people involved in a plan to exchange methamphetamine for a car. So here's the plan. Here's what, basically, the deal is this. Um, the police are looking to arrest somebody who's been wanted and is out on, on the run. It's a fugitive. So the plan is they're going to sell a car to somebody who wants to buy a car. The idea is they're going to get this car and obviously drive away and escape from the police. Um, so they're, they're trying to lure the guy in who's in hiding, who wants to get away, who doesn't have a car. And he and his friend... Uh, uh, agree with the police that they're going to buy this car. They don't have any money to buy the car, but they do have meth. So the plan is they're going to exchange methamphetamine for this car, and the car is going to be sold by this undercover officer, uh, undercover police officer. Well, in the course of the plan, the the wanted fugitive's friend recruits a third party, and that third party is Richard. Now, Richard isn't really involved up until the point when they say, hey, we need somebody to go along with us with this deal because uh, we're afraid that this person who's selling the car to us might try to rip us off. They don't obviously know that's a police officer. So the idea is they're going to meet up with this person and Richard's going to come along with the deal. So they show up and the deal is, again, very clearly methamphetamine for a car. So they show up at the scene and, of course, the police as they had planned to, arrest the wanted person. 
They also arrest the wanted person's friend. The wanted person's friend is clearly involved in selling them with the methamphetamine and also clearly involved in trying to hide the fugitive. But Richard is there too. Now Richard, what was Richard doing there? Well, Richard was basically there uh, to help them sell the methamphetamine in exchange for the car. What's Richard guilty of? Well, Richard made an agreement to sell methamphetamine. He didn't do a whole lot beyond that, make that agreement, but he did make that agreement. And his plan was to help with the deal if the deal ever happened. But the deal never happened because obviously the plan was to arrest the fugitive. So Richard's guilty of conspiracy. Now, this raises two issues, right? The first issue here is, is it a Wharton rule problem? And it's not because there is no completed offense. The second issue, though, is, okay, it's not a Wharton rule issue, but it's a single sale of methamphetamine in exchange for a car. And generally speaking, we don't prosecute people for conspiracy when they're just making a single drug deal, right? We, we charge them with possession with intent to distribute. We don't charge those as conspiracy cases. And so the case goes to trial, Richard is convicted, but when it goes to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals reverses it and they say, you know, the jury should have been instructed that a single sale of, of, uh, of drugs without more doesn't really prove a conspiracy unless there's a plan here to further promote and cooperate in the ongoing buying and selling of, of methamphetamine. The case then goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, and the Virginia Supreme Court reinstates the conviction. Um, first of all, they repeat here again, Wharton's rule is still alive and well. But in this case, Wharton's rule is not going to apply because there is no completed offense. Here, there is no completed sale of methamphetamine. There is just simply uh, the, the agreement to commit the crime, and then nothing else happens, right? If you had completed a deal for a sale of uh, methamphetamine in exchange for a car, then you'd have the distribution of methamphetamine offense, and Richard would be guilty as a principal in the second degree. And if you're not sure about that or how that all works, go back and listen to the previous episode. We talk about that in, in great detail. But here, right, when we have a single uh, buyer and seller uh, agreement, right? A, a single uh, agreement to exchange money for drugs. Again, you're not going to have a conspiracy. There's just going to be a single sale of drugs, right? But in this case, this is not a single sale of drugs. This is a agreement to exchange methamphetamine for uh, for an automobile between the fugitive and the fugitive's friend and the undercover police officer. Richard's not involved in that agreement. This is not a single buyer-seller relationship of money for drugs. Richard comes in as part of a conspiracy. He's brought in as a third party. And so this case, Richard says, yeah, if you were prosecuting the fugitive or the fugitive's friend, you couldn't prosecute them for conspiracy because this is a single buyer-seller relationship between the, and the undercover officer. You'd prosecute them for possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine. That would be the crime that you'd charge them with. But here, Richard is charged with conspiracy. There you have some kind of pre-concert, some kind of connivance uh, for Richard, and so he can be charged, in this case, with conspiracy. And I think that's a really interesting uh, set of facts. You're not going to have this a lot of the time, but you may have this in cases where, you know, you somebody asks someone to front them drugs so they can make a deal, right? 
So the the uh, the person, if it's an undercover buy of drugs, the person who's making the undercover sale of the drugs to the to your undercover officer, they're just going to be guilty of possession with intent to distribute. But if the drugs are fronted by somebody else, uh, there you might charge that third party with conspiracy. And there is a separate drug distribution conspiracy offense. It's eighteen point two two fifty six. And it's actually a little bit more uh, powerful code section than the regular conspiracy code section. So I encourage you, if you can, to use that code section when it applies, uh, because it is a powerful offense. Why is conspiracy so useful? Why is it that we try to prove conspiracy cases when we, when, when we can? Well, part of the reason is that the co-conspirator exception to the hearsay rule is very powerful. And part of the reason is that venue provisions in it are so powerful as well. Um, venue under 18.2-22 is any part of the, where any part of the conspiracy is planned or where the act and consummation of the plan um, is, or any, any, excuse me, where any part of the plan is made or where they commit any act uh, done towards the consummation of the plan. And that's pretty powerful, right? Because again, that you can capture a conspiracy, even if it's, if the plan is to commit it outside the Commonwealth, you could prosecute the conspirators here or vice versa, right? If they conspire, one person conspired outside the Commonwealth with somebody in the Commonwealth, uh, to say murder a police officer, you could prosecute anywhere the agreement, uh, was planned, anywhere the conspiracy was planned, or anywhere where they commit an act towards the consummation of that plan. And again, you don't have to prove an act in consummation, but if, let's say, for example, they went to buy the gun to commit the murder in um, in Stafford County, and then they went back to Prince William County to plan it, and one of the people they were planning with was located in Maryland, and they were texting back and forth with a person, and the officer they're planning to kill is in uh, Culpeper County. Uh, so they drive to Culpeper County and they sort of wait outside the officer's residence or something like that, uh, and they get arrested there. They could be prosecuted in Culpeper or Prince William County or in Stafford, and all of the conspirators could be prosecuted in any of those jurisdictions, even the one, even the co-conspirator who was in Maryland the whole time and never came to Virginia. Uh, or only came to Virginia at the end, even if he didn't even know that they bought a gun in Stafford. Uh, because again, you're responsible for all of the acts in the conspiracy, even if you don't have knowledge of what some of the individual acts were to commit the, the final goal to which you agreed, which again, here in my made up example was uh, murdering a police officer. But again, the other reason to, to, prove, to put on a conspiracy case and the other advantage of proving a conspiracy is the ability to admit statements of co-conspirators. And the co-conspirator hearsay exception is a very old exception to the hearsay rule. Uh, and it's a very powerful exception to the hearsay rule. And this is a, an exception that came up in a case called Pulley versus Commonwealth, which is a case, again, uh, from that same uh, last week of December. Uh, this case was from the Court of Appeals. And in Pulley versus Commonwealth, the short version of the, spirit, of the story is uh, that they plan to import uh, Suboxone into a prison, um, the conspirator, some of the conspirators were outside the prison, some of the conspirators were inside the prison, and the plan was to collect together some drugs outside the prison, then ship them into the prison. Police find out about this, they execute a search warrant, they seize the drugs. It's about uh, $16,000 worth of Suboxone strips that were going to be distributed inside the jail. Uh, it was about 
1,300 doses of, of Suboxone that were going to be distributed. Um, here, the Commonwealth was able to show that there were co-conspirators and there was a conspiracy involved, a plan involved to commit a crime. The crime was never consummated. Uh, they get a hold of the drugs outside the jail, but they never get them even close to the jail. But again, the statements of all the different co-conspirators, because they were conspiring to commit the same criminal act, were admissible in trial in addition to the defendant's own statements. And so that was uh, uh, evidence that could be used to prove the conspiracy and therefore uh, was admissible in this case, right? So here, because the Commonwealth was able to show that there was a conspiracy in the case, um, the co-conspirators' prior statements uh, were admiss admissible in trial, even though they weren't the ones on trial, right? And even though they couldn't be cross-examined by the defendant necessarily, um, but here, all of the acts and declarations of any of the co-conspirators, even if the defendant wasn't involved in the conversation, right? So some of the people outside the jail, uh, here the defendant, um, which, which who was Mr. Um, Pulley, was one of the defendants in the jail, but he wasn't the only person in the jail that the co-conspirators talked to. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that he wasn't part of those conversations. Those conversations were still admissible at trial to show that this conspiracy existed and were admissible again against Mr. Pulley because again, as I noted at the beginning, all of the actions of anybody involved in a conspiracy uh, are, are admissible and all the people involved in the conspiracy can be held responsible for the actions of everybody involved in the conspiracy, even if they didn't know about those specific actions or statements or whatever, right? Um, each conspirator essentially is the criminal agent of the other conspirator. And when you agree to a conspiracy, you basically agree to what everybody else has said or done already or what they are going to say or do in the course of that conspiracy, even if you're not there for it. Um, so important safety tip, don't agree to a criminal conspiracy because if you do, uh, bad things will happen. Uh, and so again, that's... that's um, yeah, that's just sort of a, a, a little a little helpful tip, uh, courtesy of Big E for your life in general, right? So again, how do you prove a conspiracy? Uh, well, it's going to be hard because you may not be able to get a direct person saying, yes, we conspired together to make this agreement. But if you can show conversations or you can show that there was a meeting or that you can show some evidence of planning having taken place, um, then you may be able to prove a conspiracy. But remember, it's not simply the act itself. It's not simply the fact that a crime itself took place that proves a conspiracy. It has to be proof that then it was some kind of agreement. And also remember that if you're going to prove the final committed crime, that the actual crime committed, that usually swallows the conspiracy. So if you're, if you're proving conspiracy, oftentimes it's because you have maybe a third party who didn't show up to the actual crime itself. So you have to uh, prosecute them for conspiracy or maybe because you foiled the crime before it takes place. That might be another good reason to prove a conspiracy case. But if you can, and again, that's what happens in Pulley, right? They foil the uh, importation of these thousands of, of doses of Suboxone into the jail before it takes place. And so they prosecute the conspiracy uh, here. And that's, again, a, a, a pretty useful tool uh, because now they can admit all these other co-conspirator statements.
So I hope today's series uh, was interesting to you. It was a little different than normal. Oftentimes we talk about sort of cutting edge stuff or new cases, but this was sort of a, a legal fundamentals thing. But uh, if it was interesting to you, let me know. If it wasn't interesting, if you're like, hey, that was kind of a waste of my time. I didn't like to do it. Let me know that too. Good news, bad news, whatever I like to hear. I like to hear uh, feedback one way or the other. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Stitcher. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We can be on another app if you want me to. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Um, if you have ideas for future episodes, definitely let me know. I can tell you that we are going to be talking about the new General Assembly soon. Uh, we have a lot of new bills to talk about. Uh, there are, you know, easily, I think, 12 or 1300 bills in the House that have already come out, uh, about half that number in the Senate. Um, and I've gone through and read a lot of them. Um, we'll see what kind of makes it, what bubbles to the surface, what sort of, you know, picks up steam versus what gets killed early on. Most stuff gets killed early on, um, but we'll see what, what's worth talking about in, in future episodes. And we'll keep you updated about that. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is starting to hand down rulings, so that'll be another thing to talk about as we come up. And we're in a world now where the Court of Appeals now takes every single criminal case that goes to trial. So every case that goes to trial will be appealed to the Court of Appeals now. They have an appeal of right. So we'll see more opinions, too, from the Court of Appeals soon enough. And that'll give us lots to talk about, which is uh, good. So if you have stuff that you want to hear about, let me know. Uh, otherwise, we've got plenty of material coming up. For today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.